star of the West, the Judas of the West, the Great Compromiser, a profligate demagogue, Prince Hal, Harry of the West. After nearly half a century in public service, Henry Clay of Kentucky managed to rack up as many nicknames as he had offices under his belt. Representative in the Kentucky State Legislature, U.S. Senator, U.S. Representative, Speaker of the House, Secretary of State, but there was one office and one title that he was never able to claim despite decades of trying. Though he threw his hat in the ring until it was worn and tattered, Mr. Clay would never be called Mr. President. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. For our regular listeners, Henry Clay is a name that you've heard time and again, as anyone who discusses antebellum American politics ultimately has to deal with Henry Clay. He was a force to be reckoned with in his time, and I thought that it was finally time to give Mr. Clay his proper due. As there is so much to cover about this giant in American history, I'm anticipating that this will take three episodes to cover. Then we'll take the focus back to Harrison and some of the leaders of his administration. As with Harrison, I think that an examination of Clay's life brings up many important issues crucial to an understanding of antebellum America. Plus, he's just such a rascal in both the best and worst connotations of that term. And in such, at least for me, makes me consider human nature and habits and how we should always know ourselves as individuals in order to avoid being hindered, as Clay was, by some of our worst impulses. With that said, let's dive in. Like General Harrison, Henry Clay started life as a Virginia native, and like Harrison, he was the seventh child born to his parents, the Reverend John Clay and Elizabeth Hudson Clay. However, unlike Harrison, Clay's family was not quite so prestigious in Virginia society. He was born north of Richmond at Hanover Courthouse on April 12, 1777. The area is described as, quote, a low swampy area, and his family had a, quote, 464-acre homestead worked by 21 enslaved people. The family, though being harassed by British troops during the invasion of Virginia, does not seem to have been impacted directly much by the revolution. Clay's father died early on, and his mother soon remarried, quote, a Virginia planter and militia captain named Henry Watkins. As part of the inheritance from the deaths of his father and grandfather, Henry Clay would find himself at the age of four as the owner of three enslaved people a fact that presages the large role that slavery and the debate over that deplorable institution would have on his life and public career. Despite the family's not inconsequential wealth, and likely due to the family's prolific size, Clay's mother Elizabeth would ultimately have 16 children between her two husbands. Henry Clay did not receive a strong education as a child, a fact that he would later call, quote, one of his weak points through life. However, he was able to receive an education in public speaking from witnessing firsthand some of the great orators of Virginia, including Patrick Henry. After his family moved to Kentucky, Henry remained in Richmond, where he managed to impress George Wythe, who had trained to practice law a couple of guys you may have heard of, James Monroe, John Marshall, and this guy from Albemarle County named Thomas Jefferson. Wythe took Clay under his wing and taught him not only law, but also instructed him on how to function in Richmond society. Though Clay had managed to make a good name for himself, Richmond already had more lawyers than it knew what to do with. Meanwhile, the West had more legal cases than it had lawyers. Thus, Clay followed his family, as well as other young Virginia lawyers, on the trail to Kentucky. The young Clay established himself in December 1797 in Lexington, a growing town central for trade, 
commerce, and learning, described by some as the, quote, Athens of the West. After studying Kentucky law for a few months, Clay obtained his license to practice law in the state and quickly fell into a profitable business. His good reputation came not just because of his diligent work, but also because, as Clay biographer Robert Remini noted, quote, Clay also won acceptance among his new Kentucky neighbors because he could drink, carouse, swear, and gamble with the best of them. Indeed, over the years, Clay would become infamous for his carousing wherever he went. However, unlike so many other fun-seeking young men from Virginia, Clay was as ambitious as he was festive. Not even in the state for half a year, Clay, utilizing the pseudonym of Scavola, published an essay on his thoughts on reforming the state constitution to allow for a single-house legislature and gradual emancipation of slaves. In his appeal for emancipation, he wrote, quote, Can any humane man be happy and contented when he sees near 30,000 of his fellow beings around him, deprived of all the rights which make life desirable, transferred like cattle from the possession of one to another. To suppose the people of Kentucky, enthusiasts as they are in the cause of liberty, should be contented and happy under circumstances like these would be insulting their good sense. Unfortunately, Clay's appeal fell on deaf ears, and Clay and his Kentucky neighbors would prove to be content and happy under the circumstances of slavery for the entirety of Clay's life. Clay would be more successful in his appeal for the hand of Lucretia Hart, with the two marrying in April 1799. Lucretia's father, a native of Hanover County, Virginia, like Clay, was a wealthy merchant in Lexington and provided the ambitious young man with access to, quote, the best and most influential economic and political circles in Kentucky. Clay would make use of that in 1803 by gaining election to the Kentucky General Assembly and quickly establishing himself as Jeffersonian by introducing a bill to reduce the number of electoral districts in the state for the upcoming presidential election, a move seen as being to the detriment of Federalists in the state. The bill passed, and Jefferson would win all of the state's electoral votes in 1804. Clay soon became known for his skills at debate and was described by a contemporary who said, quote, The sound of his voice is terrible. Yea, it is like the voice of many waters. He hath humbled the mighty in the dust. It wasn't long before Clay was elected as a U.S. Senator, chosen by an overwhelming vote of 68 to 10, with even enemies whom he had debated with in the state legislature voting for him. Clay would travel to the national capital in Washington, D.C., and be sworn in on December 29, 1806, despite his being only 29 years of age at the time, and thus not meeting the constitutional requirement that senators be at least 30 years old upon taking office. Though this tenure in the Senate would be brief, as he was only completing the remainder of his predecessor's term, which was a period of just over two months, it would allow Clay an opportunity to rub elbows with many of the national figures of the time, including Jefferson, Secretary of State James Madison, and fellow Senator John Quincy Adams, as well as, quote, show off the sharpness of his rapier tongue and his, quote, impressive talent for sarcasm in various Senate debates. Though he left D.C. in the spring of 1807, it was likely that many, Clay being first and foremost, thought that he would not be long in returning. When he got back to Kentucky, Clay immediately set to work on what would prove to be a successful campaign to return to the General Assembly. However, he would find himself locking horns upon his return to the legislature with Humphrey Marshall, a Federalist state leader around 17 years Clay's senior. Partisan agitations were heating up around the nation during Jefferson's second term, and Kentucky would prove to be no different. 
The conflict between the two would be taken to another level when Clay introduced a resolution in December 1808 for, quote, all members of the state legislature to wear only clothes of American manufacture to show support for Jefferson's embargo, a move which Marshall derided, and the two got into a back and forth in the assembly chamber, during which, quote, Marshall called Clay a liar, and the young man lost control of himself. He lunged at his tormentor, arm raised high over his head. Other members intervened, but the blood was too hot by this point, with Marshall continuing to insult Clay when he attempted to apologize to the assembly. Clay challenged Marshall to a duel, and the two carried it out on January 19, 1809, in Indiana. Clay received a flesh wound, but thankfully the hot-tempered men did not injure one another any worse. Indeed, American history could have proven to have been quite different had Clay suffered a more severe injury. Clay's rollicking times in Kentucky state politics were soon to be at an end, however, as the next year he was elected for a second time to the U.S. Senate to fill a seat that had become vacant, and on February 5, 1810, would take his seat again in that body. Though most of his later fame would come from his ten years in the Senate, Clay would write to James Monroe in November 1810 of his preference for the House of Representatives, quote, turbulence to the solemn stillness of the Senate chamber. There would be nothing solemn or still in Clay's approach to the deliberative body, however. His first speech, delivered three weeks after he took office, called, quote, for resistance by the sword to aggressive moves against American trade by foreign powers involved in the Napoleonic Wars. Clay claimed that, quote, no man in the nation desires peace more than I, but I prefer the troubled ocean of war to the tranquil, putrescent pool of ignominious peace. Despite the nation having problems with both Great Britain and France at the time, Clay expressed his preference, quote, for war with Britain, because I believe her prior in aggression and her injuries and insults to us were atrocious in character. It is said, however, that no object is attainable by war with Britain. The conquest of Canada is in your power. Wowza! Three weeks in, and Clay's already calling for war with Britain and an invasion of Canada. Not aggressive or ambitious at all. Historian Robert Allen Rutland, in his examination of the Madison presidency, asserts that, quote, the 11th Congress was led by inferior talents and honeycombed with recusants. The most exciting new face belonged to Henry Clay, who came into Congress in the middle of the session and impressed colleagues with his confident air and personal charm. He quickly became the leader of the faction that would come to be known as the Warhawks, but Clay knew that he would be more effective espousing his martial cause in the House of Representatives than in the Senate. Thus, he announced his candidacy for a House seat, and upon hearing that he was running, all the other prospective candidates withdrew from the race. They knew it was a lost cause. Clay was headed to the other side of the Capitol building. As usual, though, in any new endeavor, Clay would enter the House, breaking convention. Due to his performance in the Senate and some internal disputes within the Republican Party, when the Republican caucus got together to choose the next Speaker of the House for the 12th Congress, it chose none other than Representative-elect Henry Clay of Kentucky. Now, some people don't realize this, but if you thought that other positions in the federal government, like the Supreme Court, were vaguely described in the Constitution, check out Article 1, Section 2. Quote, The House of Representatives shall choose their Speaker and other officers. The office of Speaker is a constitutionally established office, but that is absolutely all that the Constitution has to say on the position's duties or who can serve as Speaker. Legally, 
the House could choose anyone as their speaker, a member of the House, a member of the Senate, a pedestrian walking by the Capitol building, the mascot for the local high school football team, Queen Elizabeth II, anyone. Thus far, they have only chosen fellow members of the House. But Henry Clay stands out as, to date, the only time when someone was elected as speaker on his first day in the House. If you think that would prove to be a hindrance to his effectiveness, it was actually the other way around. One of the reasons he was chosen is that the folks in the House wanted a change in how the office was managed. They wanted an assertive person who could stand up to John Randolph of Roanoke, a representative from Virginia who had been a thorn in the side of Jefferson and Madison and was said to, quote, disregard all rules. We'll get back to Randolph in a moment, but I want to take a side note to point out something important here. Prior to Henry Clay taking up the Speaker's chair, the Speaker of the House was not really considered an important position. As just stated, the Constitution provides no guidance as to what the Speaker actually did. Instead, the office was considered by the early Congressional members to be like the Speaker in the British Parliament as more of an, quote, institutional role, a presiding officer whose principal functions were to direct traffic and keep order. It seems like the main reason that the first Speaker, Frederick Augustus Conrad Muhlenberg, was chosen for the position is because he had a, quote, clear, penetrating voice. Also, it helped that he was from Pennsylvania, with a president from Virginia and a vice president from Massachusetts. It was seen as important to have a geographic balance in the government, and you don't get much more balance between Virginia and Massachusetts than Pennsylvania. However, considering that I would guess most of you had not heard of him before this moment, Muhlenberg's penetrating voice did not penetrate the annals of history. As those of you who listen to the Companion podcast, The Presidencies of the United States, already know, James Madison was really leading the agenda in the first Congress, and indeed in most of the government in the earliest days. There had been attempts to strengthen the office of Speaker, such as when Theodore Sedgwick, a Federalist, was elected in 1799 and used the office to appoint Federalists to key chairmanships and committees. However, the Speaker still didn't direct policy or move legislation through. That role went to other people, such as John Randolph, during his tenure as Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. That is, of course, until Henry Clay ascended to the Speaker's dais. John Randolph had become Ways and Means Chairman in 1801 and made a name for himself, both as a leader and as a, how shall we say, colorful character. The gentleman from Virginia was described as having, quote, a high, weird-sounding feminine voice, described by one contemporary like, quote, the screech of a peacock, and this voice was matched by, quote, a sharp tongue. Randolph was, as described by Robert Remini, quote, tall and extremely thin, and usually wore a floor-length overcoat with an upright standing collar pulled tight around his neck so that his head looked like it was mounted on the collar of the coat. As he grew more arrogant and contentious, he often brought his favorite foxhound with him into the house chamber, and anyone who protested the presence of the animal was threatened with his riding whip. Randolph and his faction of the Democratic-Republican Party, known as the Quids, had grown in their opposition to the Jeffersonians to the point that they even sided with the Federalists against the Embargo Act. Randolph would be trouble for these upstart warhawks, a name which Randolph himself bestowed upon the group, by the way, and would prove to be their first major obstacle. The new speaker was ready for Randolph and any others that might stand in his way. 
The new speaker, Henry Clay, was ready for Randolph and any others that might stand in his way. First, he utilized the power already available to the speaker and swept older representatives out of positions on important committees, replacing them with young war hawks. Clay, however, immediately started changing the role of the speaker by insisting upon his right as a member of the House to both debate and vote on any issue before the legislative body. This may seem like a small thing, but remember, his predecessors considered the role to be more about keeping order, and thus, none of them had participated in debate or voted after they were elected to the speakership. They just presided from the dais. By asserting his right to express his opinion by his words and his vote, Clay made it clear that he intended to be involved in policy and in pushing his agenda through the House. To that end, he also took upon himself, quote, the right to refer all bills introduced into the House to an appropriate standing committee. Again, this may seem like a small thing, and indeed, it could have been that misconception that allowed Clay to get away with it, with little to no objections at the time. However, we can see the importance of this power in House procedures of the present day. Clay had empowered the committees to the point that he could direct a bill that he wanted to fast-track to a committee chaired by someone he knew would get it through, or... On the reverse end, if he didn't like the bill, he could send it to a committee that he knew would just ignore it. It was no longer the House instructing the committees. It was the Speaker. One of his greatest powers, though, was found in that procedural order-keeping that was already a part of the role, but Clay took it a step further. By calling members to order if they delayed proceedings, and by prearranging for one of his floor speakers to, quote, move the previous question, which cut off debate, Clay was able to procedurally control the flow of legislation once it made it out of committee and on to the floor of the House. He would move legislation for a vote that he knew would pass because he had already worked behind the scenes to get a majority to get it through. Just as he had once charmed the social leaders of Kentucky, so too was he charming the congressmen in the House. Even Randolph was no match for him. Wisely, Clay gave him some free reign. As noted by Remini, Clay, quote, treated John Randolph with a certain degree of deference, but deftly hedged him in whenever possible to keep him from causing trouble. Clay protected Randolph's right to speak and dissent, but when the Virginian presumed to take liberties with his position as a representative, Clay did not hesitate to rule against him, knowing full well that the members would uphold his ruling. Clay even managed to eject Randolph's foxhound the next time he tried to bring one of his dogs on the floor of the House. Randolph was forced to acknowledge that the, quote, Speaker of the House of Representatives was the second man in the nation. Remini speculates that Clay and Randolph, quote, secretly admired each other, or at least respected the other's talents and abilities. And I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. Indeed, they seem to both have a fearlessness and sometimes ferocity in going toe-to-toe -to -toe with their opponents, and both at their own times controlled the House. However, it was clear that, as soon as Clay mounted the Speaker's dais, that Randolph's time was done and Clay was now in charge. Next time, we'll see where Clay leads the House and the nation. Those of you who have been frequent listeners may remember a war with a year as part of the name of the war. Well, Clay became Speaker in late 1811, if that gives you any clues as to where this is heading. Until then, please feel free to reach out to me with any thoughts or questions at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. And I'm now on Twitter at harrisonpodcast. Don't make me say it a third time. As always, special thanks go to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. Clay's story couldn't sound nearly as good without his able assistance. 
If you're in need of his services for your next audio project, drop Andrew a line via email. Andrew at Foncook. That's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. His contact info can also be found on the show notes for this episode at whhpodcast.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, dear friends, take care.